Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 116 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 116, Scott and I are going to do something, well, slightly different than what we've done before. A slight alteration on some of the things we've talked about before. We're clustering together a financial transparency episode. Essentially what we're going to be talking about is financial things and stuff that have happened in Bible quizzing in our memories of the past. And uh, we're going to be kind of taking some umbrage about certain things that have happened. And so obviously, you know, if you've been a longtime listener to the podcast, you have heard us take umbrage with all sorts of things uh, going back in time and so forth. But this one, this episode is really all around financial umbrages that we want to take, uh, well, things that we want to take umbrage with of a financial nature. And we want to do this from a perspective of transparency uh, and understanding that, like, like, why are we doing this? Well, a few reasons. Number one, we just like tape, taking umbrage with things. It's fun to complain. But really, the, the honest reason is because sunlight is the best infectant. Uh, there have been problems with financial things and stuff with money in the past involving Bible quizzing because, I mean, things cost money. And Bible quizzing is a thing, therefore money is involved. And that hasn't been all the, you know, it hasn't been perfectly handled in the past, which is understandable. And so we should discover those things. And sunlight is the best infectant to prevent systemic problems and reduce uh, random problems in the future. And of course, you know, those that don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So we want to learn from our history and try not to repeat uh, the mistakes of the past. From a general perspective here, like we're going to, our goal here is to be as transparent as possible about our understandings of the past, uh, where finances or money has become an issue, or it has been at the heart of some sort of controversy. We are not going to, we're not going to remove names to protect the innocent. Um, we are actually going to be providing names out of a sense of transparency, not out of malice. At least I hope it's not out of malice, but it's out of a sense of transparency. And of course, all of this is under the umbrella of these are as best as we can recall the memory, the, the accurate memories of Scott and Griffin, right? But we could be misremembering certain things and that's fair. One thing I do want to mention in terms of like why we think financial transpa uh, transparency is important is we want to be clear that things cost money. And w if something is expensive, that in and of itself is not necessarily bad, right? It's rather that we're conveying value for the price, right? So if something is very expensive, but yet it's of very high quality, okay, fine. If something is cheap and not of particularly great quality, okay, fine. If something is of high quality and low price, okay, again, great. Um, it's really the problem. The problem sort of shows up where you've got something of low quality at a high price, and that's where we start to have some umbrage moments. So this is not, our umbraging is not necessarily about any absolute value sum, but about relative cost to value and all of the context around these sorts of financial questions. And really the context is probably the biggest thing. So with that all said, um, Scott, what are your thoughts? Um, another kind of contextual point is I've come to really believe that in 
And organizations such as Bible quizzing, whether it's the district level or the national level, the international level, it is very beneficial for whoever is running the organization and the competitive events to do whatever they can to um, be clear that everything is above board and fair. And that is not because I think people will otherwise think it is not above board and not fair. But I think everything runs better when such um, steps are taken by those at the very top level. One example being there were years where PNW hosted Great West, which involved Western Canada and Canadian Midwest. And as the host district, I was in charge of the quiz questions. Well, I spent a lot of time asking both Western Canada and Canadian Midwest for whatever question sets they had. And I worked to incorporate the sets together into one because I didn't want the question set used for competition to reflect any styles of one district over another. Um, also, once the quizzes were generated, um, I, I had them printed out and sealed into envelopes, not because I thought anyone was going to cheat or because any of the other districts were think, would think that I was cheating, but just so that no one, like could think it was even possible. And it just, I found that that level of transparency and care gives everyone such like freedom and peace of mind that everything runs smoother. What do you think of, of that Griffin? Yeah, obviously I totally agree. The other thing I, I want to mention, this is something that Scott and I were talking about a little bit before we hit the record button on the the podcast episode uh, today, which, of course, we, we sometimes do that. We usually have a pre-show sort of scrum figuring out what we're going to talk about in terms of, of the organizational structure of, of, the, of the episode. And sometimes we actually talk about things in that pre-show that I'm kind of like, oh, gosh, I really wish we had hit record because this is kind of interesting and, and probably belongs in the actual show itself. But one thing that, that, that popped up uh, just before we hit record and I want to be, I want to try to restate it as best I can remember is the notion of Christian ministries oftentimes need to pay for things, but those Christian ministries can pay for things at a, deficit at a break even at a mild profit or at an umbrage level profit right and i think where our umbraging is going to come from is at that umbrage level not at the mild profit and what does that mean i mean that's it's i hate the notion it's it's extremely subjective to say mild profit but ultimately if um, I gave the example when, when Scott and I were talking about this before, I gave the example of, let's say, a Christian camp and retreat center. So you could think of, say, Double K in P&W. You could think of Crow's Nest uh, up in Canada. But some sort of you know physical location, they have ongoing expenses. The goal of what they're doing is a ministry, and therefore they want to have prices as low as possible to encourage more ministry that takes place. But at the same time, they do need to ha charge enough of, of price such that the camp is making a little bit of profit, such that if there's some sort of interruption in service or something breaks down in the camp, they have the resources necessary to actually pay for those sorts of things, right? And that's all fine and good, but both camps operate as nonprofits, right? We already have a structure, a legal structure, 
and a financial structure in both the United States and Canada. They're different, but very, very similar in terms of how nonprofits can function. And so as individuals, I'm not necessarily advocating that an individual that's involved in a ministry register themselves as a nonprofit and go through all that paperwork and, and headache or anything, but rather to use the concept of a nonprofit ministry as an example for how individuals should operate when they are providing goods and services into the quizzing community. Um, Scott, does that make sense? Did I restate that okay? Yeah, I think that makes total sense. Um, should we jump right into equipment? Yeah, let's let's talk about equipment. So equipment is something that is necessary to run the core quizzing competition, um, but it also costs money, both of which make sense. Um, but some of our experiences in the past have been quite varied, right? So um, back when Pete Tonner was uh, producing benches um, before the Peters took over, um, so quiz benches were made by a single person, right? And that was uh, Pete. And that was the only place that you could get them. And they were widely known as the standard for um, internationals. And um, and so we definitely wanted some in PNW, but they were tremendously expensive, um, both, both in pure cost, but also in cost to ship um, because they are very, very large and heavy. Um, and so the shipping cost makes total sense. But um, the benches were, I think, $1,500 for um, a set, which would be three benches, enough for one quiz room. And this was back... Um, seven, seven, eight years ago. And so tack on shipping, which is completely uh, necessary, of course, to ship something that large and heavy for quite a bit of money. Um, it was about $2,000 for one room worth of quizzing. And when PNW purchased, purchased them, they didn't come configured correctly. And over time, the wiring of the benches is pretty prone to failure. The benches themselves are extremely sturdy. They're made of welded I don't know what the material is, but it's it's very heavy duty, which can which both contributes to its hardiness, but also to its weight and difficulty of transporting. But we just found that over time they broke enough and were just a hassle to transport that we didn't want to keep purchasing them, um, especially at that price. Even if we had the money to say have more than one room, um, more than one quiz room at our meets with benches, and so we continued to run. One room with benches and the rest with um, folding chairs and pads. And I think for the last couple of years, the benches have actually stopped working to the point where no benches have been used in PNW. I think that's a good example of with only one supplier, there is not a whole lot of motivation to either price them lower or have the um, longevity of the cabling be higher or have the customer support be better. And um, as a result, the end product was kind of, I mean, at least for PNW, we could not justify the value to the cost that was being charged. Now, granted, we haven't, we haven't bought benches in about eight years and, um, the pricing, the quality, like a lot of things could be wildly different. Um, but that was definitely like, that's a fairly integral component of quizzing. Um, I don't think it takes a ton to, get accustomed to benches if you haven't used them before. But that's something that in an ideal world, it's the best it's the best equipment to use. So everyone would be able to use them, right? From a church that just started all the way up to internationals. Um, but 
the cost and the quality just made that not a reality. Um, moving on from benches, we well, also bought... Oh, go ahead. Be, well, before you move on to benches, what were some of the, like, is the, was, what were, where, where does your umbrage pop up with this, right? Because, like, there's, there's one thing to say benches are superior to, to pads on chairs, which I think everybody universally agrees is, is true. Uh, in terms of like the quizzing experience, assuming a working set of benches and a working set of pads, quizzers, everybody, I think, universally agrees benches are superior. The problem is the the cost of it and the weight of it and the, the, the logistical overhead that's involved in there. But some of those things are inescapable, right? And so, right, right. you know, and like you were talking about, the shipping costs are unescapable and there's certainly competition in the marketplace. So like, if you don't like how much UPS charges, you can talk to FedEx or the USPS or, or DHS or something. Right. Uh, and all of that's fine. So you can ultimately try to find the lowest, uh, shipping provider at a certain quality level that you want and off you go, but there's going to be some prices there. None of that results in umbrage, right? The umbrage is really more where, and it's not even really the monopoly that would result in the umbrage directly, right? We don't care if right. there's an, a monopoly on something as long as there's sufficient quality, sufficient support, and the price is reasonable, right? Uh, but again, what does reasonable mean? The umbrage sort of starts out where you're spending a rather significant amount of money for something that breaks down and has low quality and simultaneously doesn't get a lot of support, right? Right. And so I think now some context is I was an economics major in college, and I think that that colors a lot of my um, how I view financial transactions and that kind of thing. So in this case, even though we had a, a, a pretty poor experience purchasing and using these benches, my umbrage level would be really low. No one forced us to buy those benches. They weren't um, 100% necessary to run a quizzing program, and no one forced them to buy, a, forced us to buy them again, and we definitely didn't buy them again. Um, but I think... Okay, sure, but devil's advocate, how do you feel about U-Haul? What meaning? Well, wasn't it, wasn't it U-Haul where you and your wife used them to transport yourself uh, from one state to another, and it was, you know, let's say, a highly umbrage-inducing situation? Uh, and I mean, nobody forced you to use them, but what they did was treat you very poorly, right? Sure. I would say that's different because we had a reservation for a specific date and we showed up and they were like, we don't have it. Um, which to me is a much different experience than we got benches that did work after some back and forth to get the correct cabling that we had originally ordered. Um, and so like they were functional, but then the quality broke down over time. Um, but I, I don't know. I think my umbrage really, level would just be a lot lower. See, I, I don't know. To me, that seems like the fact that you had to do back and forth, that raises my umbrage level. The fact that, uh, you know, there, there was a, the, the, even with the back and forth and you ultimately got it sorted out, they ended up still breaking down. And because of the negative of the previous umbrage, you you're like reluctant to try to resolve it with the equipment manufacturer. Right. Um, I mean, at some point, I don't know. It seems like there's, there's definitely some umbrage that ought to be taken here. No, there is some umbrage to be taken, but if, 
if the umbrage is on a one to ten scale that is largely relative, and I'm already looking ahead in our show notes and probably going to be pulling out a nine or ten umbrage. Okay. Um, relative to that, I don't know that I would go higher than a three or a four on this. Like okay. definitely Fair. above okay. above zero, but um, it was a product that I mean. The fact that other people bought it doesn't mean that I shouldn't have umbrage. But like other people, like we are one data point. Other people bought it and probably enjoyed it. Um, and we definitely got value from it. Definitely not enough value to purchase it again. But I, I don't know that I would raise the umbrage level higher than a three or a four. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, now that kind of leads us right into um, – other jump equipment since we didn't want to keep buying benches we needed something for the rest of our quiz rooms and for all of our um church programs and so we initially bought um both quizzing pads on chairs and boxes and um interfaces which we will get to from acme and kevin gunter and initially these looked like it would be great because they had something called a usb interface which allowed the benches and the cabling to be run right to a computer which and this interface was cheaper than the quiz kind of boxes that have the lights and the switches, um, and it just seemed like it would be more future proof. But as time went on, um, it just we just found that the quality was really low and the support was not really great. For example, um, the USB interfaces and the boxes, well, actually just the USB interfaces had firmware that needed to be upgraded. Well. You needed Windows to upgrade it, and I upgraded it using Windows um, on a separate partition on my macOS laptop. And as a result, um, bricked the USB interface. And when we asked about it, we're told, oh, yeah, you shouldn't run that on Mac. You know, it doesn't work on macOS even in a Windows completely separate partition, which is not mentioned anywhere and was not, and the USB interface was not replaced for us. Um, and so just like little things like that, or we, there was QuizJump software that came with it, um, and we had a completely reproducible bug, which was when a quizzer, um, I think it was the second quizzer to air out. No, it was whenever a quizzer aired out and there was a toss-up involving their team and the other team jumped on the toss-up, the aired out quizzer's light, who was no longer sitting on the stage, would always trigger. And we this happened every single meet, and we submitted bug requests, but we're told um, it was un it was not reproducible and would not be fixed. And so, just like over time, like the pads kept failing. Um, I don't know if the prices went up, but we just kept continuing to have worse and worse experiences to the point where we just were like, you know what, it makes it does not make financial sense to continue buying Acme equipment, and we just stopped. Um, and we moved to quiz time equipment from Steve Kirkman and have loved it. Like both pads and, um, set top boxes have been completely rock solid, zero issues, um, would buy them again. And I think both with, so like the benches were us only one suppliers where you could get benches with the pads and the set top boxes. There was more than one supplier. Um, I don't know if there are others besides Steve Kirkman. Um, and so, it was a very limited market as well, and so it took us it took us longer to um, switch over. But that was another situation where it just it seemed to us that in a market with only with very limited providers, there seemed to be very little motivation on the providers to, um, or at least at least Acme to provide either good quality equipment 
or support for existing equipment that was failing. Um, that's what caused us to move away from it. But I think it's, you know, it's just an unfortunate byproduct when you don't have a whole lot of competition in a market. What would you say your umbrage level for Acme uh, is, was? <sighs> that's really hard to say. Um, probably similar for similar reasons. Right. I was going to say it seemed like it for, you know, based on what you're describing, uh, it would be similar to the bench situation. Right. Like the, to me, so I don't think there was any dishonesty. There might have been some dishonesty like around, well, I can't reproduce this. so I'm not going to fix it. Like we were like, really? Like we gave you complete steps to reproduce it. <laughs> um, but I would hesitate to assume that there was dishonesty, either from benches or from Acme. It just seemed like low motivation to maintain or improve upon the quality provided, either in the equipment or the support. Um, no one was forcing us to buy it, and so over time, we just stopped. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, and then, I mean, let's compare that to, like, Quiz Time and, and Steve Kirkman. I mean, I have zero experience with Steve and support quality levels because quiz time is so rock solid. And so, I mean, it's, it's difficult to compare apples to apples when it comes to support because I've never had to call upon Steve for support, <laughs> which I guess is a testament to the quality of quiz time products. And ideally that's what I want. Like when I buy something, I don't want to have to rely on good quality support uh, and so that's why I love quiz time so much. So, I mean, have you, have you ever had to work with quiz time support? Like is, do, do we have any data points on this? I have no data points and I have not heard of it. Yeah. And I just like, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a fun scenario because the website is really old. Um, the spec sheet for ordering stuff looks like it hasn't been updated in a decade. And yet if you email and order things, you are communicated with promptly um, the pricing is what is reflected on the spec sheet. Um, the stuff comes like when it was promised to arrive in and it, it always works. <laughs> and so, you know, I, you couldn't push the umbrage level further below zero. Right. It, I mean, it's a perfect zero umbrage, right? Like, like it is, you, you get exactly what you ask for. You get responsiveness. Um, the price is reasonable. Like I, I just, yeah, I can't say enough good things about QuizTime. The other thing about QuizTime, the sets that we have, the very spe I mean, there's several different sets that you can buy from QuizTime, but the specific set that we use, I I mean, I've used a lot of different sets. I've, I've all the way back to the old Redbox sets. There's stuff at, at uh, Great West that they use that's more modern than the Redbox stuff, but it's still pretty old. There's stuff that we use at Internationals, which is like some other variety and so forth. And they're all you know, varying levels of reasonable, right? Um, relative to say Acme, where uh, honestly, I, I was constantly frustrated with Acme, right? But but all these other locations, IBQ has a weird set that's kind of bulky, but it works. It's reliable, you know, that kind of stuff. But of all of these sets, the quiz time set that we actually buy in P&W uh, is phenomenal because like, it actually has dual sets of lights, right? Like, like number one, it's absolutely bulletproof. It just always works. Like when I pull out a set, unless somebody has like bashed the thing in or something, or like some quizzer has like ripped one of the pads apart or something, it just works. Like it always just 
works, which is as, you know, as an official, that is such a huge thing to not have to stress about. Like it, it, I cannot tell you the level of, of stress reduction when I'm using quiz time equipment like that. But the other thing that I love about it is they have a dual set of lights. So like quizzers can actually see their lights. We're not like looking at one set of LEDs, like both Quizmaster and, and quizzer, like the Quizmaster gets one set of LEDs. The quizzers get one set of LEDs and, and they're pointed at each of us, right? And I love that because it's um, like, I can actually tell my quizzers, like, watch your lights. I can double click on the the, the little uh, reset button, which kind of sets it into open mode. And quizzers can just constantly be checking their lights all themselves. Like it's, it's, a, it's, it's a phenomenal, it's simple, right? It's simple electronics and yet it's bulletproof. And I just, I can't underscore how much I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything to add to quiz time. It was, it was, and is awesome. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about reference material. So this goes way back into the way back machine. So go back in time to 1995 and Griffin has a little bit more hair and his hair color is not gray, uh, back in 1995, if you can imagine that. But in 1995, uh, I was, uh, at one of the P&W I don't think it was a preseason meet, but it was like the first meet of the season. And it was, we were talking about, you know, what was going to happen over the course of, of the, the quiz season. And there was somebody selling uh, reference material. And if you got to imagine, you know, 1995. So, you know, we barely had, we, you know, electricity had been around for like two or three years at this point. Um, so this is the dark ages, you know, kind of thing. And so somebody had uh, reference material. So like, like we didn't have say computers where you could pull up the material and do searches on the material like CBQZ did not exist. And, and its predecessor Quizmaster's assistant didn't exist. There was no easy way to search through material or like, you know, figure out concordance stuff and that sort of thing. So ultimately what was the, the, the practice of the time, the practice of the period is you would, if you were an official or if you were a coach and you were writing your own questions, you would buy this reference material packet, right? And so it would include the material itself that was uh, marked up with say globally unique words. Um, and you would also buy a concordance, which was every word that wasn't like an A or a the or these sorts of things, but every sort of non-simplistic uh, article word was listed along with every place in the material where it was where you could look it up. And the value of these things was, let's say, in uh, actual quiz meets, let's say a quiz master would be answer or or listening to an answer, they would say something, well, are they in context or not? Uh, how do I figure out if they're correct or not? You would look for, you would look up words that they were saying in this giant concordance. And so anybody who was involved in quizzing back in this sort of circa 1995 era will remember Quizmaster's constantly flipping pages in their concordance, right? It was just sort of a, a common constant sort of thing, right? But again, what were these reference materials? They were really just, they were photocopies, right? Somebody came up with the reference material, generated the reference material, generated a concordance and hit the print button and took those to Kinko's. And for people who don't know what Kinko's is, this is where you would go and make photocopies of things, right? 
And uh, so what these were, that what I discovered, you know, in this uh, first quiz meet, the, the leadership meeting of the first quiz meet, somebody was selling these reference materials and they were selling them for $20. And this is $20 in like 1995 money. So that's like, I don't know, $250 of today's money. I mean, it was, it was a lot of money. $20 was a lot of money. You could almost retire on $20 back in 1995. And so you had to like, as a, as an, uh, an official, you had to have this as a coach. You didn't have to have it, but it was extremely useful. And I saw coach after coach after coach going in and, and buying the materials. And of course I did as well, because it was the only place where I could buy materials. And I, I thought to myself like, wow, that, that seems really expensive. Number one, and aren't there better ways of doing this than, than having all of this, you know, cutting down trees and turning them into paper and printing uh, the words of scripture on them and so forth. Um, so I decided uh, this is, this was the motivation, uh, behind create ultimately it turned into Quizmaster's assistant, which was the forerunner program to CBQZ. But I create, I started by creating reference materials and it was just a bunch of, um, HTML files that you and, and word documents and PDFs and that kind of stuff. It was all downloadable, uh, from, a website and so I created this little website and I put up uh PDFs and HTML files and and Word documents that you could download that would have all of this ref reference material and I generated it based on some some software that I wrote and so I'm thinking like okay so if somebody wants printed material they can download these things and hit print or if they'd rather not bother they can still go and spend twenty dollars of 1995 money and buy printed material if they so choose. But this electronic version provides another avenue. And uh, I was able to provide them for free because electrons are cheap. And I was just like, sure, let's create this material, put it on a website. Anybody can download it for free if they want to. Great, right? This is a, it seemed to me a benefit to the program uh, at the time. But it turned out that there were people who got upset about this. And it was the people who were creating the printed materials got quite upset about the fact that I was providing electronic versions of the print material because their sales went down the following year. And I thought to myself, now, wait a minute, that seems wonky. Why should you care what your sales are? Like you're like, you can't be making a ton of money doing this. And if you are, then I'm going to have umbrage about it. Why would you care that your sales are going down? And ultimately they said, and they gave all kinds of crazy excuses like, well, you know, we're providing the official reference material. Your stuff isn't official. And I'm like, well, who cares? It's the same. And they're like, no, no, it's different. I'm like, well, if it's, how can it be different? A concordance is a concordance. The reference material is a reference material. It's only different if either my, mine contains errors or your contains your version contains errors. And if that's the case, then we should figure out where the errors are, right? Like let's let's figure out where the errors are rather than persist in something that may have errors that's that remains unchecked and just use that as as leverage that as the standard. That seemed bizarre to me. So my umbrage level got peaked around the negative reaction to the idea of creating something for free because we could. And I kept coming back to this notion of, and this is something that Scott and I have been talking about for, you know, on and off for years, this notion of we're in a ministry, right? Like the goal is not to pilfer 
the quizzers. The goal is not to see how much money I can get quizzers to pay or, you know, more appropriately probably said how much money I can get quizzers parents to pay into the program. The goal is to get as many people to memorize as much of scripture as possible. Therefore, to maximize our means of achieving that mission, we want to try to find things uh, as cheaply as possible, right? To lower the barriers uh, for people to be involved in quizzing, notwithstanding the need for some people to make a small amount of profit on certain things so that they can maintain that ministry ongoing. Totally understandable. But uh, yeah, my umbrage levels definitely peaked there. And mine would too, because that seems like a completely different scenario from anything that we've talked about, which is a new competitor enters into the market and an existing uh, provider is gets upset at them about that. <laughs> right, right. For providing something of higher quality at cheaper price. And in, of course, in my case, it was zero price. Right. So we've talked about some benches and some jump pads and some reference material um, where, where our umbrage level is above zero. So I thought... We should also talk about some um, providers where our umbrage level is basically zero. Um, and one is Keith Smith provides paper materials, like um, the, the quiz booklets that quizzers often study from um, and other materials. And I have no idea what the margins are. I don't really care because the prices are low enough that it is all – it is priced in a way that is accessible to anyone who wants it. Um, and with the exception of, was it last year or the year before, where there was an error in one of the verses? Um, there's n never been any quality problems that I have heard of. Yeah, agreed. And and even when there was a, a quality problem, Keith was responsive about it, right? Like, people make mistakes. I totally get that, right? My umbrage has never, you know, spiked because somebody made a mistake. It's rather my umbrage gets spiked when somebody makes a mistake and then just doesn't deal with it, doesn't own it. Right. And Keith is a really straightforward guy. He totally owned the mistake. Um, and it's like, we just, we we're like, cool. Okay. And we moved on. It, it, it's not that big of a deal. And like, I, I totally agree. His, his paper materials have always been reasonably priced. As far as I could tell, uh, they are not $20 in 1995 dollars. <laughs> right? Um, right. And, and like he, uh, you can tell that the guy is clearly in it for the ministry, right? Sometimes it's very hard to tell that from a distance, but clearly Keith's heart is into the ministry. He's he's not doing this for profit. He's doing this as a, as a ministry and as a service, and he's charging money to try to recoup the expenses that he's that he's poured into this this sort of uh, situation. But even if that wasn't the case, right? Even if he was making a small profit there, I don't mind uh, because uh, it's still cheap. It's easily accessible and it's providing tremendous value for the dollars expended. Exactly. And I don't want to put a t too much like outsized value on this next point, but Keith shows up to internationals. Um, and I think that adds to, um, well, it's further evidence that he cares a lot about quizzing. And with other people that don't show up as internationals, we just don't know as much, right? Yeah, Exactly. Um, and then another example that I have is there was a website and service called Quiz Helper. It might still ex – I think the website exists. I don't know if you can still buy up-to-date stuff, but I believe that was maintained by Brian Orthner from Canadian Midwest. And I paid at least for one year or maybe two years to get access to the questions database, and it was um, very useful and very valuable um, and high quality and not priced very high, and uh, I, I found great value in it. 
Yeah, if it's the same website, it currently says temporarily unavailable, but it may not be that I'm going to the right website for this. But uh, no, but yeah, agreed. Um, you probably are. It was in the you know it was at least four, five, six years ago that I was that I purchased it for a couple years, and and you know I think it had it had value. You know, not dissimilar to the question sets in Microsoft Excel that Carl Seneker um, sells. It's reasonably priced. It's high quality. I find value from it. Um, and I think, you know, there's there's enough of these kind of sources out there that um, it's very hard for one of them to start charging tons of money and not providing a whole lot of value. And so um, I, I always found value in um, giving myself access to as many question sets as possible, both to see the styles um, and, um, just to give myself further assurance that I was presenting PNW, um, quizzers with a wide breadth of material coverage, question types, um, and writing styles. Yeah, indeed. So moving on from equipment, we're going to talk about Great West only briefly. Um, but I, I came back to quizzing in 2012. And so that quiz year was my first year kind of back involved. And I don't know at what point in the stage, um, I learned information about Great West. I, I've always kind of just wanted information about how things were running. Um, but I learned that um, Western Canada had been the hosts of Great West for 2012 and at least the five years prior. Might have been longer, might have been a year shorter, but it was at least um, a run of years that they were the host. And based off of what they charged us for registration and some kind of back-of-the-napkin rough sketches – it seemed like they were probably making a little bit of money from um, from hosting Great West. Of course, work goes into hosting it that the the other districts that participate don't have to do. Um, but because it seemed like, hey, they've been running it for a while, and they're probably making some amount of money off of it, I just requested, hey, could PNW host in 2013? And was told yes. Um, and so, I mean... If my umbrage level is even above zero, it would be um, incremental at, at most um, because they were not holding on to that, right? Um, there wasn't something that they were trying to hold secretive. I never asked them for financials. I didn't care. Um, and PNW tried to run Great West by charging the lowest amount that we could. And I think we, we did that and ran some really great meets. And then um, as time went on in the Canadian dollar weekend um, – both Western Canada and Canadian Midwest told us that it would be significantly better financially for them if the meet happened in Canada. And so I think that's kind of, that was the impetus for Western Canada to continue host, to, to take back hosting. Um, add into that, there were a few years, I don't know if it started in Montana, um, but there were a few years where all three districts stayed the night, Saturday night after and everyone departed on Sunday. This is in contrast to when I quizzed, we would go to Calgary, um, and as soon as quizzing was done on Saturday, you know, around 4 or 5 p.m., we would leave so that we could get halfway home. Um, and all three districts made it clear amongst themselves that um, as long as the meet was in some pretty narrow geographic bounds, like maybe Montana at um, Hungry Horse was the furthest west and Crow's Nest Pass was the furthest east, it would allow Canadian Midwest and, and PNW to stay Saturday night. And that was very important to all three districts. And I think um, both because of the weakening Canadian dollar and that kind of realization, 
it's just been hosted at Crow's Nest for a couple years, and I think everyone has been wildly happy with it. Um, so that's a situation where I sense that there was maybe a little historical – it's not nepotism. It's um, just kind of the default was to have one district host it, and they might have been – might have been doing okay financially doing it, so I just asked to do it and was readily allowed to do it, and then it switched back. And one thing that I wanted to try to implement when I was running PNW, just never was able to do it, was can we just set up a structure where we run Great West between the three districts at completely break-even so that, hey, Western Canada is hosting one year and Crow's Nest inc- wildly increases the price of, of um, renting the camp – Western Canada shouldn't be left um, to pay that. Um, similarly, maybe there's a year where Crow's Nest can't get business and, it, and like reduces their rates by half. <laughs> um, it also shouldn't be the host district, I think, that um, gains money because of that decision. That was not, not something that I could ever get implemented. Um, I honestly didn't try very hard. But I think that that kind of idea could be really useful, which is removing the financial aspect from from the picture completely, right? No one running it or participating in it will be either benefiting a lot or losing a lot financially. And we're just trying to put on um, the highest quality um, event that we can for the most reasonable prices. Yeah, cool. And that's all on Great West. So on to the, the main event. Yeah. Um, so again, I returned to quizzing in 2012 and again, I just kind of like information. Um, I coached, um, the 2012, um, internationals team. And so had firsthand knowledge of all the expenses involved with attending internationals and was just really curious, um, how our registration money was being used. I can't recall what we got charged in 2012 per person. It was 350 or 425 or something. And I was like, I literally have no idea what it costs to um, like secure a venue like Crown and feed everybody and anything. Um, and so I just asked for, can I see financials on internationals? Like just, you know, there was 24, 26 odd teams, seven paying people per team plus some spectators. So there's your income and your costs are going to be the venue, food, um and then other stuff around awards or um, travel and logistics for some officials. Um, and so I was, it seemed like a pretty reasonable request um, because, you know, again, some back of the napkin math and the registration for internationals seemed a little expensive, but I didn't know. So I asked. A and, little expensive or very expensive? You know what? Um, it seemed like it, 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 it was costing twice as much as it should have. <laughs> which is probably yeah. a lot, but I had no knowledge, right? I, I was, right. Um, so that was 2012. I was 25 years old. I had never booked a venue for 200 people. <laughs> like, um, I, I, you know, I didn't know if, if they get a really nice deal from Crown because it's a CMA college. I, I had no idea, right? Um, and so I asked, and for the next 12 months, got the complete runaround from Life Impact Ministries, who was the ones running internationals. So they were the ones who would take in all of the registration money. That's who you paid it to. They were the ones securing the venue and like handling expenses. And it was just a never-ending, like, I would ask. And after a very long time, would get a response about, like, we can't provide it. Or can you tell us again why you want it? There was never, like, well, you're a participant, <laughs> 
Um, of course, we'll tell you about the financials of internationals. Um, and traded, I don't know how many emails, probably over 20. And then um, finally, at internationals in 2013 that I was attending, had a sit-down meeting with Jerry Mapstone and was handed paper financials, which were hardly itemized. They were very top-line income expenses um, for a couple years of internationals. And it just, it felt like, um, not like it felt like, there was a, a huge desire to not provide me internet, to not provide me financial information on internationals. And I just, I didn't know why, right? Because, um, I mean, obviously, with that amount of time, and not being willing to provide the information um, without being told outright no, right? Just kind of being like strung along. You definitely start to assume that, hey, there's something to hide here because otherwise they just would have provided international uh, financial information. I was running PNW and I gave financial information on PNW to every participant. <laughs> and um, I don't know, like, Maybe it's maybe my world was far simpler than their world, right? Um, but as time went on, I was like, it sure feels like there's something to hide. Like I'm very deliberately not being given this information. Um, well, let me let me jump in here for half a second. So so there are certain things that are true, right? Their world definitely is more complicated, or I should say was, past tense, in 2012, 2013. Their world was definitely more complicated than your world, but but so what? At the end of the day, like you got to and actually forget the end of the day at all points of the day. The reality is Scott slash Scott's wife were managing P&W financials and were provide which granted were simpler than than international uh, stuff, but and smaller. Right. The budgets were smaller, but you were still volunteering your time and you were still providing financial transparency to one degree or another. And if somebody wanted additional transparency, you would have taken that seriously and you would have attempted to provide it. Right. And if you couldn't have provided it, you would have said, I can't provide it. And here's why. <laughs> right. Um, and, and maybe we can figure out a way that we can provide it yet at the, at that greater degree going forward or something like that. Right. That's, that's how you would have responded to it by contrast, life impact ministries, uh, or limb had a bookkeeper at least one, right? They have somebody on staff who is actually managing this this information and it's literally their job. They're getting paid to do it. Scott and Scott's wife were not getting paid. Scott and Scott's wife were volunteering their time and yet were more responsive and more transparent. And I, I'm starting, like, I know listeners can start to hear the umbrage building in my voice right now, right? Um, but this, this is, this is, I want to be very, clear that there there is i i recognize the difference between internationals complexity and pnw complexity it's a it's a let's call it an order of magnitude difference but there is a there is also a difference between the the level of support that is expected when you've got somebody volunteering his time versus a bookkeeper who's being paid to actually handle the bookkeeping so anyway, so I'll step off my my umbrage <laughs> box for a minute, right? And so as time went on, I continued to poke and poke harder, right? And 
Um, there are people within PNW who have lots of his- knowledge of history, and so I learned about the history of Life Impact Ministries, right? Um, it was a ministry w- as part of Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, they Their main ministry they ran was Life every three years, but they also ran, um, what was it, Operation Give Back Child. I'm, gonna, I'm butchering the name of it. Um, I can't remember. But anyway, um, Operation Something Child. Uh, you can all laugh at me later. And they also ran internationals. And then at some point around, I don't remember the exact year, but it was around the year where internationals was hosted at Ambrose in Canada. Um, and it, it was not a result of that internationals, but kind of the surrounding timeline. Um, Life and Back Ministries ran a huge deficit um, in their in their own budget. And as a result, that deficit had to be made up out of CMA's Great Commission Fund. Um, which was not a great outcome. Um, and we should we should qualify what huge means. We're, we're talking, I have heard estimates that this is in the multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like this is not like huge, it was, it was is a very accurate word. It was a very big deficit for the overall budget for the year. Right. And as far as I, as far as I know, like it wasn't fraud or something. It was just um, a, a bad job managing a budget yeah. expenses, right? Um, and from, but, a, from what I've heard, basically, it was people who were, the people who were spending the money did not have any sort of spending oversight and were spending money kind of like they had a parent's credit card. Like it was just sort of, they would they would see something shining and they would buy it, you know, kind of stuff. And it was, I, I agree. I, I don't think there was any sort of fraud. I think it was just bad spending practices, bad spending, financial oversight, uh, a lot of just sort of poor operational and poor strategic decision-making. Right. And, but like the how behind how it happened or the specifics, like any of the specifics aren't really salient to the discussion that we're having. Um, But what is, is that because of that large deficit that was run by Life Impact Ministries, the CMA was like, hey, we can't Going forward, we don't want to be liable for that sort of deficit to potentially be made up out of the Great Commission Fund, which is meant to fund missionaries. So we are going to separate off Life Impact Ministries from the CMA from like a um, organizational financial perspective. And so because of that, Life Impact, Life Impact Ministries has to run wholly by themselves, um, and their budget is their own, any, any profits or deficits that happen. And now, granted, um, this was me not being given information. And so I'm starting to wonder, like, is there something to hide? Is there something untoward happening? No specific evidence that something is, but definitely wondering if there is. And so I'm looking for narratives that would make sense. Um, And this was one of them, where I was like, hey, Life McMinistries needs to run by themselves. Their, Their largest... Um, source of income is life, which happens every three years. It would make sense if, for the events that happen every single year, like internationals, um, it would make sense for Life and Back Ministries to want to kind of eke out every amount of profit that they can, because that kind of smooths their their books, their budget, their income over that kind of three-year time period where life is, um, like, I have no idea, but I have to imagine that life was 80% of their income. Um, and when I say income, I mean like they were running as a as a nonprofit, um, I assume. Um, but it seems to be 
difficult to run any sort of business, nonprofit or otherwise, where the bulk of your income comes in once every three years. Right. Um, and so it just seemed to me like, hey, if I was running Life Impact Ministries and I had the opportunity to not make 10% profit off internationals but make 18% profit or 23% profit or like pick a number because I'm picking numbers out of the hat, um, that would go a long way to like – making the fin- the financial management easier. And again, this is nothing specifically untoward or even verging on fraud, but um, that was a narrative that I was like, huh, I wonder if it's happening. Again, zero evidence for it. Um, any Anything you want to jump in about? Nope, but I, but I, I, and this is the thing. You, well, okay, one thing I'll jump in on. You had to speculate because you didn't have information, right? And so you're, you are trying to assume reasonable people doing a reasonable job acting morally, and you're trying to find, a, like you said, a narrative that fit the facts that, of the data that you had. And you wanted to find more data, right? You were you were you were happy to be convinced that you were incorrect on any of your assumptions, but in absence of data, you have to make assumptions. Exactly, right? Um, so, like, let's add to the narrative. Um, it was not long after that 2013 internationals that a member of the CQLT um, wrote a proposal to kind of um, change a lot of things about how quizzing happened and was governed. Um, the big points. So this was someone who was on the leadership team um, and their main. And what, what, and sorry, was it called the CQLT back then? It was not called the CQLT back then. I have looked through my documentation to try to find what it was called and can't find it. And mm-hmm. the best historian that I can think of over the last 10, 20 years, Zach Tinker can't think of a specific name either. So maybe it, there wasn't a specific name, but anyway, this yeah. proposal by a member of the leadership team, um, so this was someone from Central Canada who like was very invested in quizzing and not someone from Life Impact Ministries. It was around creating um, election processes for the leadership team, which didn't exist, right? About creating term limits, um, which didn't exist, and bringing financial transparency to all the financials around quizzing. Um, and... I was not given this proposal. I was running PNW. I heard about it because they reached out directly to me after they had been removed from the leadership team by Jerry Mapstone. And it just, it, it all seemed very bizarre to me because on the face of it, the proposal was incredibly well thought out, incredibly well written, and seemed to be overwhelmingly positive for quizzing. Um, but they were removed from the leadership team. I have no idea if it was because of the proposal, but the timeline sure lined up and looked to be more than coincidental. And to be fair here, you had, you were given no reason as to why this person was removed. They were just removed. And so again, you have to speculate why. Exactly. Right. Um, and I, like from running PNW, you, you, you definitely come across circumstances where Maybe you don't want to give 100% information to everyone on why someone was removed from a position or wasn't allowed to run something or whatnot. But I think you owe some amount of information to people. Otherwise, they're just left to like kind of twist in the wind and wonder, like, did you just not like them and so you kicked them out? Because <laughs> that, that would suck. I don't know that that's not the case, just as I don't know that it is the case. But it's just you can see how I was a passionate participant – and 
my attitude was just worsening <laughs> by the month. I was like, who runs this? Do they even care about quizzing? They won't give out any information. And as far as I know, they just want to make money off quizzing and kick out people that care about it. Right. And that's just yeah. like what happens when you're not provided some amount of information about um, things that happen. Um, additional things are like internationals was hosted at summit Grove Bible camp three years in, I think a five year period and was just a terrible, terrible place to host quizzing. They didn't have the space for it. Um, some people were in a quiz room that was outdoors underneath a tent on not flat ground. So trying to quiz on benches in very warm heat, um, not on flat ground. The food was awful. <laughs> and again, um, just like 2012, it seemed to be wildly expensive for what was being provided. Um, I come to learn that the person who runs Life Impact Ministries, which was Jerry Mapstone at the time, was on the the board of directors at Summit Grove Bible Camp, which again, just leads you like to wonder, like, hey, is it beneficial like for, for him personally um, to have this meet hosted there, right? I don't know what Summit Grove is charging Life Impact Ministries, but by extension, quizzing and um, the participants. Um, I don't know what his financial situation is as director and how he find, you know, if there's anything beneficial for him if the camp has full occupancy throughout the year. Um, and you can, you can definitely see that my thoughts are quite cynical because I really haven't been given a reason to think otherwise. And so, um, I ended up pulling the, uh, tax returns for the, the camp to try to see if there was any disclosure of financial, um, financial things between the camp and the, the board of directors. I didn't, I didn't see anything. Um, I did learn that, um, Jerry Mapstone lived on the camp, and his housing was paid for by the camp. Um, but that was just kind of another another thing on another bit of knowledge, right? Like I, I haven't met anyone that enjoyed their experience at that camp relative to, say, Crown College um, or Ambrose or Toronto or any other of the places that we've had internationals recently. Um, and there there seemed to be a conflict of interest there. And then um, Jerry retired. Um, some at some point around 2016, and Scott Waitley took over for him. And it was at that, the 2016 Internationals where I had, um, during a meeting, some pretty pointed questions for, um, I can't remember if it was David Freeman from the Canadian CMA or if it was Scott Waitley who was the one speaking at that. But I was, I was asking questions like, hey, we haven't had financial transparency since, you know, in the last four years. Are we going to have it now? Because... I have no indication that there isn't something untoward happening, um, which it appeared that Scott Weekly took it pretty personally because he came up to me afterwards and was pretty upset about it. And then um, during the sermon the next day to all of the participants was like, um, you know, at the end, I think he said, I'd love any questions that people have. I'll answer any question that you have, except for questions about my salary. That, that question I will not answer. Um, and it just, it seemed super hostile when, um, like I was absolutely very pointed. Um, but I wanted information from life impact ministries about the financial setup around internationals. I did not care specifically about, um, any participant of life impact ministries unless that had, um, relevance right to internationals. And, um, I, I just, 
I didn't know the situation, and I was I was curious how the books were run over the three years, um, each three-year cycle involving life, um, what the cost structure was around internationals, and if they were making tons of money, um, because I just wasn't sure. And to be clear here, your pointed questions, none of your pointed questions were like, what is Scott Wakely's salary, right? Like you weren't, you weren't, you weren't asking like, tell me who the people are in life and what they're getting paid. You like, like their, their take home pay or anything like that. I'm assuming, right? Like you were asking more like, what are, what is the budget for quizzing? Is that, I mean, is that fair? That is fair, right? Like I wanted to know, I mean, the ultimate question was, what is the amount of profit that Life Impact Ministries takes home from quizzing year after year, uh, right. right? Knowing that it's not the same every year, and it could be negative, could be positive, I, could be zero. I have no idea. Um, but because of what had happened starting in 2012 to 2016, where I had been given extremely limited information, I was like, what am I to believe, right? Like, for all I know, Life Impact Ministries makes 75 grand off of quizzing every year and takes its entire staff to Maui. Right. And it's like, I obviously don't know that that happens, but like I was at that point where it just seems like you are digging in your heels so hard. Um, what, what's the deal? Right. And like, you know, I, you know, looking at this from an outsider's point of view, although I think, you know, in, 2016 I wasn't an outsider I wasn't in that meeting with you so I guess I'm I was an outsider to that meeting but looking at the situation like okay so Life Impact Ministries loses a a, a chunk of, a very large chunk of money to uh, out of the general fund part it is entirely possible that part of the resolution of that mistake I and I think it was an honest mistake I mean I think it was um, incompetence, multiple layers of incompetence, but I, I think it was an honest, if, if there's such a thing as an honest incompetence, I think that was what was going on here, right? Um, but possibly part of the divorce of Life Impact Ministries from the general fund was, okay, well, we want you guys to pay some of this back, like like try to restore some of this deficit that, that we've, we have in the general fund, because like the kind of ostensibly the entire point of the CMA, the Christian Missionary Alliance, is the missionary part, right? The middle word is kind of really important. And if we're pulling money away from the thing that's in our name, right, like maybe we should put some of that back, right? So I can totally imagine a situation where like Life Impact Ministries is saying, okay, we need to put back into the general fund X amount of dollars per year on average, right? Whatever that, you know, pick a number, right? So let's say they pulled a $500,000 deficit and Life Impact Ministries is, it has covenanted to say, we will put back $50,000 into the general fund per year over 10 years on average, or at least we will you know, not as a, not as a covenant, like we're absolutely going to do that, but as a covenant of we're going to strive to do that. Right. And so therefore quizzing being one part of life impact ministries needs to net, let's say $10,000, you know, a, 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 a profit quote unquote, which is not really profit in the grander scheme of, of things, but it's profit in terms of quizzing. And that profit then goes back into the general fund to try to cover this massive deficit uh, spending thing that happened in years past, right? 
all of this would be, you know, you could look at this and go, that seems reasonable, right? Like it makes sense, right? I don't personally agree with that choice, but I can totally understand and even respect the decision-making around that sort of a choice. But the problem is nobody was willing to tell us that, right? There's, there's, there's no transparency. Like we don't know if somebody would say like, yep, quizzing is operated at a profit and that profit is going to the general fund. And that this is the reason why, like we might disagree with it, but at least we could respect that point of view. What I can't respect is this extreme desire to, it seems, and again, I'm, I'm reading somebody's mind at a distance, which is usually really bad, but it seems like there's a, an extreme reluctance to be transparent. Right. Um, which I don't, yeah, it, it just, it seemed so bizarre to me when like that, that, I don't, that was like the only place that I was experiencing in quizzing. You know, I talked about my almost zero umbrage financial thing about great West. But the second I asked a question, I was given the ability to do, you know, do something. And so like there was zero, like there was no request that I made that wasn't answered. And, um, it just, internationals just seemed like a whole different ball game. Um, and it, it really rubbed me the wrong way because, um, you know, well, maybe- and the reactions too, right? The the reaction of like you ask me for something, and let's say you're very pointed, and I don't like the fact that your questions are pointed at me, but you ask me very pointed questions. Maybe I don't like being transparent with you, and maybe I don't like the fact that you're being pointed with your questions, and it makes me uncomfortable because I don't like your confrontational attitude or something like that. But then to turn around and say I'm not going to talk about my salary, like. But Scott wasn't asking me about my salary. That just seems it's, bizarre to me. It seemed very vindictive. And I think Scott had taken over within the last, like, couple months. And so there was, like, very limited ability for him personally to have any, like, knowledge or influence over the institution of life and ministries. And I was commenting over the last, like, four to five years, you know, of experiences and lack of information um, and that was one thing that I was careful is like, I'm really, you know, want, just wanting to know information here and, um, whether or not it was perpetuated by a single person is, or not, is kind of irrelevant, you know? Right. And I mean, in a sense, you were even, you were even willing to accept that it was, you know, perpetrated by a single person, right? You just wanted information, right? Uh, yeah. And you would, you had been... You had been waiting for four years for information. Was was Wakely in that meeting aware? Like part of your pointed questions, did you talk about the fact that you've been? I mean, I'm assuming you did. You you said like I've been asking for this for four years. It is now a chance where I'm going to be able to get access to this information. Right. And my read on the situation was that Wakely had no knowledge of me and was hearing about me, learning about me firsthand, and kind of as the new leader of Life Mac Ministries felt personally attacked, um, hmm. right? Um, when I was more addressing um, the last four to five years of ineptitude that he was not leading Life Impact Life Ministries over, you know? Sure. So it felt more like he felt blindsided by the scenario. But I definitely remember saying, like, financially, we have been given zero information and zero reason to trust any way that you conduct yourselves around internationals and money. 
um, you being Life Effect Ministries, right? Um, is there a chance of any of that changing? And um, yeah, but I mean, the indication then was no. And given um, problems people on the CQLT right now have with lack of financial transparency from the CMA, it looks like there is nothing new under the sun. Yeah, indeed. Well, so like, you know, bringing this up to date, um, actually, let's bring this up to date after the next thing. Let's talk about the per quizzer fee. And then let's talk about the current world order. I feel like I don't know a lot about the, the per quizzer fee, even though I think I was running a PNW when it was instituted. And I don't know that I have a huge amount of umbrage over it. Um, but I think it was, um, it was a desire for quizzing to kind of more have their own books and budget. And so if you want money to assemble the CQLT in person once or twice a year and to do some marketing and website things, um, a good way to generate a budget would be from um, each participant in quizzing paid by their own district. Um, And I think that started roughly around 2016. Um, I recall having zero umbrage about the communication level about it, the transparency level and the democratic nature of it. Um, I have no idea what has happened since as far as if people pay in or not, what's done with the money and what is disclosed about what's done with the money. I have no idea about any of that. Um, but as far as like its institution, my umbrage level is zero. Yeah. And I mean, on its surface, it seems reasonable. I mean, the, the price right now is $8. If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, I could be remembering this incorrectly, but the, I believe the price is $8 per quizzer per season. So in the grander scheme of things, per quizzer, it's not a ton of money, but collectively across, say, larger districts, right? So let's talk about CMD, for example. Across CMD, that $8 per quizzer amounts to a, that's a, that's a good chunk of money. That, that's not trivial, right? And then when you're talking about the, across the entire program, it's like, okay, this is, this is starting to actually add up to a decent amount of money. Now, then we say, okay, well, that's not bad. That's potentially good. We're, cl- we're, 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 cl- we're pooling our money together. And then the theory is we can then use this money for not internationals things and stuff that benefit quizzing, right? So it could be, like you said, marketing videos, promotional materials, whatever else, like the idea of, of training and equipping other, other leaders, growing quizzing into other areas of uh, either the United States or Canada. There are different parts of, you know, especially in the United States, there, there are large chunks of the United States. Uh, In fact, I would, I believe a majority of the geography of the lower continental, uh, the 48 states of, of the United States, I would, I would say the majority of that territory does not have quizzing. And so we pool our, uh, some resources from across the participating districts into a central pool. And that central pool uses those funds to build quizzing programs in other places and sustain and help grow quizzing within the districts where quizzing exists right now. That totally makes tons of sense. But then I would want to you know, as somebody who's contributing into this, I would want to know, okay, well, what is it getting spent on, right? Like, are are the things that we're spending the money on effective at actually what they're supposed to be doing? Like, the goal of this fee is to grow quizzing. Are we actually growing quizzing? And to what degree are we doing it, right? What are we spending the money on? And how effective is it? The, to me, this is a basic thing. And at the very, very, very minimum, 
I would want to see here's the books. Here's how much money we collected last year and the year before. Here's how much money we're spending this year and what we are expecting next year to spend. And here are the things that we are probably going to be spending it on. And granted, these are going to be like line item kind of things. So there's going to be buckets uh, out of stuff, right? One could be just like video marketing, quote unquote, right? And there's just a, a figure, you know, a very round number figure there or whatever. And that's fine. But it gives me some some expectation. I would consider that to be the absolute minimum for a Christian ministry organization, right? Absolute bare minimum. Ideally, I would want to take it a step above that and or, or step beyond that and say, okay, well, here are the metrics for what defines success of our marketing efforts or our growth efforts or our evangelism efforts or whatever it happens to be, right? So you say like there's a line item here for video marketing. Okay, great. Here's the amount of money. Here's what we're going to do with that money, what we expect to do in the next year, two years, three years, whatever. Uh, maybe it's just the next year, depending on planning. And here are the metrics behind, like, here's, here, here, here's how we measure whether or not we were successful. Uh, we expect this kind of growth or these kind of products or, or videos created that have this kind of outreach or whatever it happens to be. And you can make these as detailed or as fuzzy as you want. I Ideally, I'd like... I, you know, you know me, the more objective you can have your heuristics, the better, but whatever it happens to be like, like some sort of way where we can tell, like, was this a good idea to spend, you know, let's say you have, you know, $5,000 in a, or that's probably too much, but let's, you've got $2,000 in a bucket for video marketing and like, okay, great. How do we know that that was a good idea at the end of the year? Right? Because at the end of the year, if it was a bad idea, we want to do something different. If it was a good idea, we want to continue to do it probably and maybe even expand it, right? So how do we how do we know? How do we make those decisions? Granted, those decisions are made by the CQLT, right? And the CQLT are elected as representatives across the, the districts. And so the CQLT at a minimum needs to know this, at a minimum, right? But ideally, what's the harm? And in fact, isn't it a really good idea to leverage the brain power across all of Quizzingdom by making all of those details public, right? Uh, the CQLT, my understanding is the current CQLT would love to make that, that information public, but they can't. And that is deeply frustrating to me. The reason they can't make it public is because it's managed by the CMA office. The CMA office is managing it with bookkeepers, I, I really want to come back to that point and underscore that point. You have bookkeepers who are paid to do this, and yet we cannot get transparent budget reporting. That to me, I, I and I, 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 again, I want to, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to say anybody is cooking the books. I'm not saying there's any fraud going on. What I am saying is that there's incompetence going on and you cannot convince me that there's not incompetence going on when I'm, when, when you're paying somebody to manage the bookkeeping and they can't provide a once a year financial statement, that's broken. Yep. Agreed. So I don't know. Uh, sorry. That was a pretty big bombshell. Any other, any other thoughts on any of this stuff, uh, Scott? Um, I don't know. I've just, over time I've, I've just continued to prepare myself for financial incompetence um, just in any sphere of life, right? Like there was the time where I moved from um, Seattle to Michigan 
and I think it was my internet provider um, sent me a prorated refund for a bill already paid uh, because I moved in the middle of a billing period for like Uh $51 or something. And then three to four months later, I get a voicemail saying, so we sent you too much in the refund, so we billed you for it and haven't heard back, and so we sent it to collections. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, so because you messed up, you then billed me. And by the way, they had um, sent the bill to a very old address. Like, it was an address. It wasn't even my previous address that still had forwarding. Um, but because of all of your incompetence, you then sent it to collections and made me spend my time to fix it. It just seemed, like, just insane, right? And then right. there was a time when PNW sent our our own district money um, quizzing money through, um, Pacific Northwest's district, um, CMA office. Um, and so when like each of our churches paid yearly registration, we sent it to our district office. And when we needed to pay internationals registration, we asked the district office to cut us, to cut a check, um, to internationals. Well, um, we just assumed that they wouldn't pay money that we hadn't sent them. (laughs) But then at one point, they were just like, so you owe us like, you know, $3,100 or $2,400 or something. And we were like, wait, so you aren't keeping track of this to the point where you just paid money that we hadn't given you? And they were like, correct. Um, And so I just kind of, I'm prepared for financial incompetence. And in general, unless you are on Wall Street where there is rampant corruption, um, it, it doesn't seem like there's lots of financial corruption. It just seems like there's lots of financial incompetence. Yeah, and there's plenty of incompetence on Wall Street, too. Sure, sure. Um, but, I mean, those are just a few examples of, I was just like, wait. So, do we really owe you money? Because you were supposed to tell us if we didn't have any. Um, but, yeah. Do we, have, do we have any, like, top-level takeaways, Griffin? Well, I mean, yeah, I think the top level takeaway is, you know, going back to the what we started the show with financial transparency is important. It's 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 important. And it's not it's not important because we think there is fraud going on and we want to root out the fraud. Rather, we want financial transparency because in the absence of financial transparency, we don't know what's going on and people's imagination just goes places and it's not conducive to the mission. It's actually anti-mission, right? It causes people, anytime somebody, I, I, th- my goal in PNW is to have people not think about the finances, right? How do I, because, because if they're thinking about the finances, they're not thinking about how to, uh, how do I get the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses, right? Um, so I want people to not think about the finances. How do I get them to not think about the finances? By being as transparent as I possibly can, by answering questions as quickly as I can, by being responsive, uh, you know, by doing as good of a job as I can so that they ultimately trust me. And then they stop thinking about the finances. And it's not even that I care that they're thinking about the finances or not. It's that I want them to be focused on growing quizzing, right? And any time that I am providing them a, a, um, a reason or a lack of data such that they are questioning things or wondering about things that distract them away from the mission, I'm actually hurting the ministry. And so... 
like you know granted in pnw uh we have not been as transparent as i think we could have been right we try to be transparent we haven't actually published a full-on detailed uh budget uh in you know in the COVID times and we probably should have done a better job about that right um and you know mea copa mea copa mea maxima copa you know like i totally own it um and we need to do a better job but the goal here is if anybody were to ask about any kind of financial questions, I would strive to be as open as I could be. I would, I would, if they were getting very hot under the collar about any sort of missing information, I would be pulling all nighters to get them the information. Right. Um, so now because of the level of trust that I've developed with the P, uh, with PNW quizzing, nobody in quizzing is asking these questions right now. Now, granted, that's not a good thing long term. I ultimately want people to have as much tra financial transparency as possible. But let's say somebody in PNW uh, new to the program, doesn't have a lot of faith and trust in Griffin, hasn't had a lot of experience with Griffin, doesn't really know me, sees or hears partial information, incomplete information, and is like, wait a minute, I want to see the budget. And Griffin says, I actually don't have that immediately available right now to hand it to you. And they start getting upset about it, right? What's my reaction? What should be my reaction? My reaction should be, you're absolutely right. You deserve, you are paying into this program. It's a nonprofit program. It's a Christian ministry. You should, you should, I should be able to provide you a budget. I can't, that is my fault. I need to fix it. And guess what? I'm pulling all nighters until it gets done. And there's no excuse. I'm, I'm 48 years old. I'm not in the best shape of my life anymore. Uh, Pulling an all-nighter is not fun. It's, it's, you know, it was easy to do when I was 25. It's not easy to do when I'm 48. Uh, but I'm going to do it because it's in the best interest of the ministry. And that's the role that I accepted when I became district coordinator. It's the role Scott uh, Peterson accepted when he became district coordinator. Uh, I think that's just it's a necessary part of, of doing things. And so if somebody is going to punt that and say, okay, sure, maybe you should have tr financial transparency, but I'm going to get around to it this summer. Maybe that's to me, absolutely unacceptable. It is a failure of leadership. It, it, it's just absolutely wrong, both morally, ethically, and from a leadership perspective, I have, there's no way to justify that. You pull an all nighter, you get the job done. Yeah, agree. I think that's the best way to sum it up is um, any time that a participant spends like on this sort of thing is taken away from from better uses of their um, attention, right? And that is completely avoidable by those running any organization. Well, and on that bombshell, we should probably wrap things up. Um, I do want to remind folks that. Um, <laughs> we are, we are, you know, granted you've heard the umbrage in our voices and you've heard us be very frustrated about certain things. I've gotten on my umbrage soapbox a couple of times. Um, if I've crossed the line, I apologize. I don't think I have, I don't mean anything here to be personal, but I, I really want us to do a better job. I think we, we, we are shepherds of a program and we should do a better job. If you disagree with me, 
uh, or Scott on anything that we have said on this or any episode, we very much want to hear from you. Uh, you can email us at iq at cbqz.org. And in particular, if you disagree with us on anything, uh, we will take your disagreements seriously. We'll probably even share those disagreements on a future podcast episode. If you disagree with anything that we've said in this particular episode, I guarantee you we will, we will share your thoughts. Uh, probably verbatim, if you're okay with that, uh, on a future podcast episode. We definitely want to have increasing levels of transparency. So please email us at iq at cbqz.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, our account is at Inside Quizzing on Twitter. And you can also chat with us in kind of almost near real time on the Bible Quizzing Slack channel, Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thanks very much, Griffin, and thanks to all of our listeners. <laughs>